Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiative podcast. I'm Dr. Eric Crampton, Chief Economist with the New Zealand Initiative. We've been thinking about the Independent Hearing Panel's review of Wellington's district plan. Wellington has a desperate housing shortage. When Auckland went through its unitary plan process, an Independent Hearings Panel helped them get a far more enabling district plan that enabled a lot more housing. And then Auckland rents, they, they flatlined relative to what they otherwise would have done. We were hoping for a similar process here in Wellington, but it seemed a little bit disappointing. With me today, I have Marco Garlick and Eleanor West, both of whom have been involved in this process, formerly of Generation Zero, now coordinating City for People, which is sort of an umbrella group for those who want to enable more density. I like all of the recommendations that that group has been coming up with. I generally put it as a yes and, as you might have caught in the New Zealand Initiative's newsletter this past week, where I said everything that they say is great, but also allow new subdivisions. Today, we're going to be focusing on the IHP process and the review and how we've gotten to the spot that we're in now. So Marco was one of my students in public economics a few years ago when I taught at Vic, won the Seamus Hogan Prize for the best student in the class, or top marks. And Eleanor has been doing thesis work at Utrecht on urban geography and economics, right? Urban and economic geography. That's yep. the one. Thank you, Eleanor. And Marco has got good training in economics, but also works as a barrister. So first up, I guess Wellington's a case study. You guys had done some work previously a piece written for Works in Progress, which is a wonderful online magazine, where you documented sort of how New Zealand got into a terrible housing mess, and then how Auckland seemed to get out of it, and there's a political consensus for enabling more building. So what's the big difference between the independent hearing panel process that happened in Auckland and what's been going on in Wellington? Like, just on process rather than on results. Like, uh, is it that central government appointed the panel in Auckland or what was what's the main difference? Yeah, I, I can take that one. I guess, yeah, the main difference is that in Auckland, the panel was appointed by the central government. In Wellington, the council went through a process to appoint the panel themselves. In Auckland, the panel had some economics representation on it. I think it was Stuart Shepard who was involved in that. That's been quite widely regarded as having pushed that panel towards quite an ambitious position on enabling housing in Auckland. The panel in Wellington doesn't appear to have much economics expertise. They're mostly just planners, which is, you know, fine, but we also need to have some economics in the room there. Cool. So Auckland wound up with relatively enabling plan. Now, as we came into the IHP process in Wellington, Wellington Council had first put up a district plan that had enabled a fair bit more intensification. It reduced the number of areas that were, where development was kind of blocked by special character areas. There were still too many to my liking, but it was a sharp reduction from the prior district plan. It also took a broader view on sort of walkable catchments. The national policy statement on urban development requires that councils allow up zoning within a walkable catchment. Of course, that doesn't force anybody to build an apartment tower. It just says it is legal for you to build something of up to six stories, almost by right, in those areas. How did Wellington come to a relatively enabling district plan where sort of the ex-ante plan in Auckland had been a lot more restrictive? So in Auckland, they started from kind of a bad spot and then moved to more enabling. How did Wellington get to kind of a good spot before the IHP process? 
Well, I think that actually Auckland started in quite a good spot, moved to a bad spot, and then moved back to a good spot through the independent hearings panel process. But in Wellington, it's been a two-step process. So it started out with a spatial plan, which was released for consultation in the late 2020, I think, which was like a month after the NPSUD was released. So Wellington's spatial plan, which is kind of like the blueprint for the city, was Wellington was the first large centre that had to implement the NPSUD, which, as you were saying, requires requires councils to zone for at least six storeys in urban centres and within walkable catchments of mass rapid transit stops, so like trains, stations, bus stops. So the spatial plan, when that came out, was actually quite enabling because the council had to implement the NPSUD. And then through the consultation process, we, through advocacy with City for People and a bunch of other organizations involved with us, managed to push that plan to be even more enabling, which was really great. There was a lot of pressure put on the council to say yes to housing. It got watered down quite a lot when the initial district plan that was published, like the draft was published last year. And now we're at this point where there's an opportunity in March for the councillors to make some decisions before they enact the district plan. They can opt to make it more enabling again by changing some of the zoning rules. But yeah, as you were saying, it looks like the independent hearing panel is not quite recommending in the direction we would have preferred. So Fill me in on just how this process works. Like, why are there even independent hearing panels? We've had a district plan. It went through a submissions process. It was deliberated on. Like, how how does that work? Are they required by legislation? Is it something that councils can just decide that they want to have a second check on things? What's the admin on this? Why is it as it is? The IHP process was set up in Christchurch in Auckland. For Christchurch, that was after the earthquake. In Auckland, it was the unitary plan. There's sort of two advantages to that speed and also insulating the process from politics. Councillors, the assumption from central government is that councillors will be flaky, will listen to residents' associations and generally take housing out of plans. So they wanted to put these plan changes through a fast-track process. That's what the MPSUD enabled when it came time for all the councils around the country to update their plans. And... The assumption was that the IHP, because they're not politicians, will just look at the law and apply it, and that will generally be more pro-housing than councillors. But what we've got is an interesting situation, is they've reported back in a less pro-housing position than councillors. And what happens now is that they present their recommendations, and that's the assumed plan that will go into law. And councillors have to either accept those recommendations, then they become law, or they reject them. If they reject them, that means Cabinet, the Minister for the Environment, has to accept this alternative recommendation. So it's the assumed position and Council has to depart from it. In this case, they're going to need not only councillors to agree to be more pro-housing than the IHP, but also Cabinet. It's a neat kind of process. There's some reasonable like econ lit on that you don't want to have these decisions solely be by local councils, which might as you said, be very responsive to particularistic local concerns while ignoring the broader cost to the community and to the country. That, And I've tended to favor fairly tight requirements on councils that if whatever they're doing results in unaffordable housing, that they then be compelled to release a lot more land for subdivisions while also enabling a lot of upzoning for more apartment towers and more townhouses. Just because when local decision-making has flow-on costs to the country as a whole, housing affordability issues seem to go beyond any particular locale, and the government is spending more than a billion dollars a year now on the accommodation supplement because our housing shortage has gotten so bad. 
The principle around having an independent review on top of the council doesn't seem nuts. And it seemed an important part of what you guys were talking about in the works in progress piece. So walk us through a little bit of the what you'd come to on New Zealand's housing affordability in that column, well, column article. It's fairly extensive. We basically looked all the way back to the Town and Country Planning Act, all the way through to the bipartisan agreement, and then it's unraveling when National and Act decided to opt out of it. And if you go through the history, I think a couple things are made clear. The first is that giving excessive local control generally leads to less housing, and also financial incentives on councils are really poor. So you've got this toxic mix of hyper-local control and very poor incentives to say yes to housing, and that results in one thing, unaffordable prices. Exactly. We've been making similar cases here, especially around incentives that we have wished that councils would have far better incentives for enabling housing, make sure that they share in a bigger chunk of the benefits if they enable more housing and have better ways of tying the costs of development to those who will benefit from it over time rather than trying to burden the overall ratepayer base with it, which seems to be one way of generating NIMBYs. You'd also done some work looking at what's been going on in Houston as sort of an alternative for places that have a lot of local pressure against development. Houston seems to be a canonical example of a place that's just remained affordable. It used to be kind of castigated by urbanists who'd say, well, it's just terrible because they've had so many suburbs, but it's really had a lot of densification in a growing downtown since then. How have they managed the politics of that to enable more density while avoiding like the screams of people in suburbs that don't want to have uh, new neighbors? Houston is a really interesting example because they basically did the MDRS. Within these these inner urban highways, they reduced the minimum lot size, essentially enabling townhouses everywhere. But the crucial part of it is that they allowed small, hyperlocal blocks of homeowners to bandy together and say, actually, no, we're going to opt out of this proposal. And that was so successful in sort of providing a pressure valve on the politics that normally takes down housing across the entire city and saying, okay, a few suburbs here and there, a few streets can opt out, but otherwise everyone else gets this upzoning. And it was so successful that this change to reducing minimum lot sizes has now been expanded over almost the entire urban area of Houston. So they've managed to essentially implement the MDRS avoided the backlash and expanded across the whole city. Now, MDRS might be a bit of jargon for those who aren't following closely what's all been going on in urban planning. So the MDRS is the set of rules that the Labour government put in that require councils to allow property owners to build up to three houses of up to three stories on pretty much any residential lot unless council has put a special designation on that lot. And that gets into some of the scraps around special character areas in the Wellington plan. Can you walk us through that? Yeah, so there's there's quite a lot in the Wellington plan. Um, our coalition, City for People, have five broad asks. One of them is about character areas. And what we ask for is to keep the balance struck in 2021 by council to reduce it by about 75%. These character areas are essentially across all of Wellington's inner suburbs. They protect 
pre-1930s houses from demolition and they've generally led to very little home building in the places that are most accessible to jobs, schools and all the things that are good about Wellington. Unfortunately, the IHP has increased the council's proposed reduction by 2.4 times. So when you get to the end of it, if you take the IHP's proposal, we really don't have much of a reduction of character areas and they continue to play a dominant role in preventing housing in the inner suburbs. Yeah, so the district plan that council had proposed was reducing the area to about 28% of what it had previously been and the IHP recommendation knocks it back to, was it something like two-thirds of what status quo had been while adding a new special character area in Lower Kelburn? Just to Please. chime in there, the status quo that you're talking about is 88% of the inner city suburbs in Wellington. So those suburbs that ring the central business district area, you know, we're talking about Calvin, Mount Victoria, Mount Cook, 88% of those suburbs is currently covered by special character overlays, which is pretty immense. And from my perspective, if I start off sort of property rights, if I own my land, I should be able to put up a taller building on my land. It's my land, right? And if I'm causing inordinate harm to my neighbors, maybe I need to compensate my neighbors for that. But making it illegal to build more housing on my own land in a housing shortage seems to be kind of backward. Yeah, yeah we totally I, agree. I'd, <laughs> I'd agree with that, yeah. I think it's also, it's a case of a value judgment, right? Like I think anyone can look at Mount Vic and be like, oh yes, there are lots of beautiful homes there. But you know, at the end of the day, our city is not a museum. Like we can appreciate having some beautiful homes, but we don't need to protect all of them. And there are some beautiful homes, but there are also a lot of moldy death traps that are giving people rheumatic fever. And you know, they're crammed to the brim with students who can't afford to live anywhere else. They'll take these houses because they don't have any other options because we're not building enough homes in Wellington. I think it's cruel, to be honest, and a little bit, I would say, morally bankrupt to be prioritizing aesthetics over providing housing in the middle of a housing crisis. We have people in Wellington sleeping in cars, sleeping in garages. It's pretty unacceptable. So let's get to some of the evidence then. So all of this hinges on that there really is a trade-off that if we require that there's less development in some places, that leads to there being fewer houses, which increases prices, which makes housing less affordable. And the way that normally works, as I've understood the economics literature, is when there's few houses and lots of people who want houses, then they bid up rents, rents go up, the value of a property to a landlord is the present discounted value of the future flow of rents that'll come from the thing. When rents are high, the value of the property goes up. Owner occupiers are competing against investors to buy houses. It's not just investors' properties, it's everybody's properties. The price of every housing goes up. Now, the IHP seemed to come to a different view on this, on kind of supply and demand and housing. I think, Marco, you were involved in the process and you'd provided some testimony in there. What happened? I'm still not sure exactly what happened in the IHP process, but, you know, with respect to the, the members on the panel, I think they just frankly got it wrong. What, what happened was, if you look at the reports that have come out so far, they fundamentally disagree with the proposition that more supply leads to lower rents and lower prices. They did some modeling to look at you know, the surplus capacity over demand that this proposed plan would provide. And they said that it's gonna provide a whole lot of surplus in the next 30 years 
So therefore, we can roll back housing. We can make all of these concessions, add in more character areas, reduce walkable catchments, take away the Johnsonville line, and that won't have any effect on affordability. And I think they've got a couple of problems there. The first is that demand for housing is dependent on what you zone for it. If you zone no housing in Wellington, people just move to the hut, move to Auckland, or even move overseas. So to use that as a basis for your modelling when your zoning is the very thing that is pushing people out of the city creates a circular argument and ultimately leads to less housing. The other point is that zoning and this surplus is a thing to be attained. We want a surplus of housing. We don't want a shortage. It isn't something to be afraid of and to minimise. A surplus will lead to lower rents and prices. It's something we should be striving for. We shouldn't be trying to keep ourselves in a shortage by zoning out housing from the city. Yeah, it seems pretty weird. So when I'd had a look through this, some of this seems specified in the legislation that councils are required to put up these plans showing their projected housing capacity. And I think it's MFE has an Excel spreadsheet that councils can use when they're trying to figure out how much development capacity there really is in a city. So they start off with, here's the geography that is zoned for different kinds of uses. Here's the land price. Okay, that means that only this much of it is going to be actually economically feasible to develop. And you get down to a number of the uh, projected dwellings that could economically be created. And then they match that against their projections of demand. But it, it is kind of nuts because if you projected that you've got capacity to build three more houses and they're all going to cost a billion dollars and that only one person is ever going to want to move here when a house costs a billion dollars, well, you've got three times as much capacity as you have demand. So you're golden as far as the legislation seems concerned, but the outcome seems kind of nuts. It, it was also, yeah. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it's just also to say like having a surplus of homes, as Marco was saying, is a good thing. And it's like, I always think of it like one of those slidey tile games, you know, where you can't, where you're trying to slide the tiles around to make the picture. And you can't, you can't make the picture if you don't have an empty tile to move the other tiles into, right? You'd be stuck. It's just, it's ridiculous when people talk about, oh, we don't want to have extra homes. We don't want to have empty homes in Wellington. Bring them on. I'd well, love to have more homes. The other <laughs> way of Nice. The other way of thinking about it is zoning doesn't compel any developer to put their own money on the line to build anything, right? If they think they'll lose their shirt because there's so much excess housing supply around, they, they won't build. Like, they're not stupid. They're not trying to throw money away. They're not running bulldozers just because they like running big yellow machines. Like, it's fun and all, but money's on the line. So they're not going to be doing that. They'd only be building if they expected to make money by building. If you wind up with a surplus in that kind of scenario, it's because you've put up a bunch of buildings that people find a lot more attractive than what had previously been available, and maybe some rotting wooden tents no longer have tenants anymore, and that doesn't seem like a bad thing. Yeah, it would make me happy if no one had to live in Devon Gully off Otto Valley anymore. I mean, you walk past the houses down there and you can you can smell them in the Devon Street <laughs> Gully. I think that's pretty gross. <laughs> My preference is that they're no longer considered livable. That would be an ideal scenario for me. Yeah, I have sometimes said that the best protection that renters can ever hope to have is that multiple landlords want to be their landlord and are competing for tenants rather than like 50 tenants showing up for every 
potential rental viewing and landlords getting to pick and choose. It's going to be impossible to try and address that balance through regulations hitting landlords because there'll always be some way around it. If you enable more competition, something that I really wish the Commerce Commission would weigh in on in land use planning, the extent to which zoning rules create monopolistic scenarios and create market power. But if you enable enough extra development, that competition and potential competition is a big restraint on landlords. Now, get, get away from the theory a little bit. There are some empirics around on this. So it's not just economists doing sort of blackboardy stuff, putting up supply and demand diagrams and where the scissors line up. You guys have been reading some of the work that, for example, Ryan Greenway McGreevy has been doing in Auckland. What happened in Auckland when the unitary plan there enabled an awful lot more building? The unitary plan in Auckland upzoned roughly 75% of the residential land. So that's a lot. And it actually led to a really big increase in construction quite quickly. Within five years, the rate of construction doubled. You see a lot more townhouses and apartments coming into the mix. And Ryan at the University of Auckland did some great research. He looked at what the rents in Auckland would have been if the unitary plan hadn't been put in. And he found that for you know for two or three bedroom houses, that's roughly 20 or 30% lower in real terms, the rent for those houses, than if the unitary plan didn't happen at all. So that's a massive boon for renters in Auckland. And it's, in my opinion, just an excellent piece of legislation. And I wish Wellington can implement similar. Mm-hmm. And the unitary plan also, because it you know raised building height limits across the city, it shifted where new development was happening in the city. So prior to the Auckland plan being uh, Auckland unitary plan being introduced, I think it was sixty five percent of housing permits were issued within the existing urban boundary. But after the unitary plan, that figure went up to eighty five percent. So it's a pretty significant increase. You know, at that point, like a, a big majority of housing was being built within the existing city and not expanding into new suburbs. And also, I think the permits for standalone homes fell quite significantly too. So the portion of the new homes that were being built, a much bigger share of that was terrace homes and apartments. I think that's awesome to the extent that it reflects where people want to live and the costs of developing in those places. I get a little bit worried that like two decades ago, New Zealand was pretty firmly in a let's block everything kind of equilibrium where people who love density would always block new subdivisions and people who hated density and loved new subdivisions would always block density and you wound up with each block and the other and house prices going up as a consequence. There's been really interesting work done by Chris Parker at Treasury looking at the extent to which the potential to build new housing at the city's fringes, like turning paddocks like the ones in Wellington we have in Ohio into new subdivisions reduces land prices downtown and makes apartments more affordable. So even if nobody's actually building the subdivisions, the potential to build them there limits land prices in town. So I found that fun too. I'd really love to be able to get back to that kind of a consensus. And we'd seem to have that at the start of the the last labor administration when Phil Twyford came in. It's kind of shifted a little bit since then. I also take a bit of a cautionary lesson for some of what National has been talking about for changes in zoning out of all of this experience. So I have loved, in principle, the idea that National has had that if a city wants to opt out of the medium density rules, it would have to release a whole lot more land all at once so that you get competitive urban land markets again. 
And the way that they've talked about this is requiring councils to put up 30 years of land supply all at once. Now, if I've learned anything out of the IHP process, it's pretty easy to pretend that you've enabled sufficient supply. And we used to joke before, like, on Twitter, people who kind of follow urban stuff, that the rules that National was proposing would lead some council to jokingly put up a proposal for a one kilometer tall apartment tower that was like, take up a whole city block, it'll be a kilometer high, and that'll hold the next 30 years of development. Like nobody's gonna build it, but in theory it's possible, so therefore they've met the rules. I actually think Wellington's IHP panelists would have agreed to that. So we might need some additional measures around the fringes if National does want to go ahead with that. I've liked the idea of using prices. So if land at the boundary, like the Infrastructure Commission found in Auckland, it's about $1,200 per square meter more expensive just inside Auckland's boundary compared to outside. In Wellington, it's more, it, it adds about $300,000 to the cost of a section in Wellington, the urban zoning but also at boundaries between sort of special character areas, for example, and places that are enabled to have MDRS, between those areas and the ones upzoned by NPSUD for up to six stories. Whenever we see big price discontinuities at those zoning barriers, that tells us that land that is zoned for more development is effectively scarce because a big price premium is built into that land price once you correct for other stuff appropriately. And that that should really compel the release of more land. And it's something that should be looked at a lot more carefully when we're doing up these plans to figure out whether that development capacity makes sense or whether it's kind of smoke and mirrors. Any thoughts on using prices as constraint here? Yeah, I totally agree, Eric. It's difficult reading the IHP's report when on the one hand they say there's a surplus, but if you look around Wellington, you know, house prices, a median house price in Wellington City is nearing a million dollars. So there's there's a disconnect between those two things. Prices are telling you there's a shortage, but the modeling is telling you that there's a surplus. So prices are correct and should take precedence. I think there's some ministers when they're looking at implementing this opt-out MDRS election promise have some difficult choices to make. One is that even if you still have the MPSUD, there's no guarantee that IHPs around the country are going to adequately interpret those, what I think are quite clear directions. But I also think there's some difficulties around gerrymandering of that 30-year target. For example, in California, they have a similar thing, and there's all sorts of shenanigans that's going on there. For example, some areas, localities in California, have taken new mall developments and upzoned them for 30-story towers. But these are brand new mall developments there's not there's no real prospect of them getting developed in the next 30 years but they say great that's our capacity for the next 10 years that meets the state's requirements move on so there's going to have to be some safeguards some checks and balances and ministers have some really tough decisions to make great stuff I think it's also interesting if you take it back to the example of the National Policy Statement on Urban Development Capacity, which preceded the MBSUD. And the intent behind that was to make all of the large urban areas in the country do these housing development capacity assessments. Um, and my understanding is that the, the work that went into that policy statement, they did look quite seriously at ways that they could tie uh, an outcome, like a response from councils to the results of those capacity assessments. But 
from my understanding, the issue was that they're always going to be contestable. You know, it depends what evidence you put in. It depends what assumptions you make. And that to be able to say to councils, oh, you found this outcome, you've got this capacity, therefore you need to do this outcome, like you need to zone in this way or you need to enable housing here. It was too difficult to be able to compel councils using those measures. So I think, yeah, price triggers are an interesting option. Yeah, Kurt they're and- harder to test. I think that the work that Kurt and Lees had done when he was at NZIER, commissioned by the Ministry for the Environment, was around that time and part of that process and was pointing to ways that prices could be used for signaling whether councils had gotten this right and potentially as triggers for enabling more upzoning. One more thought, Eric, which is I think when ministers are trying to implement this MDRS opt-out, there's a real tricky position where some councils are fully through the process other councils haven't even started the IHP process. And so you get issues where, for example, councils have taken the MDRS's law, implemented it, but because the MDRS creates such a high amount of capacity, they've taken a what I think is an uncharitable interpretation of the MPSUD. You then subsequently rip out the MDRS and all you're left with is a very watered down version of the MPSUD, which I don't think is the intent of that election promise and not a situation we want to get to. So there's some difficult decisions. If you restart the plan change process, that's going to push everything back at least a year or two. And again, it's in IHP's hands and there's no guarantee that they're going to give you a good result. So there's basically tricky decisions all around. Great stuff. Marco, Eleanor, thank you so much. Your work with City for People has been excellent. I like the recommendations that you guys have been making. I would add a few ands, but that's all good. Coalitions have their own objectives. We'll be putting links through to the stuff that you guys have been talking about on the website for this podcast, along with your prior work for Works in Progress and the description of what's going on in Houston and the other research that we've been talking about here. I really hope that Wellington Council Uh, is able to put up a more credible and enabling district plan for the Minister for the Environment to consider, rather than going with what the independent hearing panel would do to the city. Thank you so much for your time. Kia ora. Thanks, Eric. Thanks so much.